One eminent commentator has said, and I quote, It is well known, what a blessing to be able to say this, to live in a day when one could say this. It is well known that the fear of God is used to signify not only the whole of his worship, but all godly affections whatsoever, and consequently, the whole of true religion. This commentator could say, it's a commonly understood by anyone who knows his Bible that the fear of God can be used as a synonym for the whole of true religion. And I believe a study of Scripture leads to that conclusion, and there is this terrible negative implication. If the fear of God is synonymous with the whole of true religion, then the absence of the fear of God is indicative of the absence of true religion. And so because of the great issues involved in this theme of Scripture, we have been seeking to come to grips with some of the broad outlines of biblical thought as touching the fear of God. Since the references and illustrations of this are so numerous, it's been impossible to say start in Genesis and trace it through to Revelation, but rather we've sought to collate some of the main threads of biblical thought and set it before you in somewhat of an orderly fabric that you might at least have a basic understanding of what the fear of God is so that when you come across these many references in your own devotional reading, you'll be able to attach to those references the meaning which Scripture warrants us in attaching to them. Thus far, we have considered the predominance of the fear of God in biblical thought. Secondly, the meaning of the fear of God, with its one aspect of dread, but its predominant aspect being a fear of awe and of reverence, of veneration. As one author has said, that controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God and the profound reverence which this concept brings constitutes the essence of the fear of God. The controlling sense of his majesty and the reverence which it produces is the essence of the fear of God. And the practical outworking of that fear is that the person who thus understands God to be such a great being counts his smile as life's greatest blessing and his frown as life's greatest curse. So then to walk in the fear of God is to so live that one's life reflects that perspective. God's smile is all that matters. Let the world frown, let it curse. But if God smiles, all is well. But if the world smiles and God frowns, nothing is well. So then the fear of God then has great practical and ethical implications. Hence, the people of God are exhorted to carry out progressive holiness in the fear of God. To work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. To pass the time of their sojourning in fear. All of these admonitions which I've just quoted from the New Testament. Indicating that one saved by grace is one saved unto a life lived in the fear of God. Having then spent some time on the definition of the fear of God, we tried to come to grips with the essential ingredients of the fear of God, and I suggested that they are three. 
One, right views of the character of God. Two, a pervasive sense of the presence of God. And three, a constraining awareness of my obligations to God. To love Him supremely, obey Him implicitly, and to trust Him completely. Wherever the fear of God is present, those ingredients will be there. Now, our goal this morning is to try to discover from Scripture the origin or the source of the fear of God. Now, to show the relationship of this morning's study to what is preceded, let me use a very homey illustration, one which I trust will not cause you to begin to salivate and all of your uh, juices down here so work that you'll be distracted from the rest of the sermon uh, because of uh, what I use for an illustration. But suppose someone had never seen a nice, and then you think of your favorite kind of cake. And so you've baked this cake, and you set it before this person, and the first question they ask is, what is it? And you say, that is a cake. That is something to eat. All right, having described what it is, then they ask you, what's it made of? So you give them the ingredients. You say, it's made of flour, it's made of uh, certain forms of shortening, it has some kind of leavening, probably uh, baking, um, uh, baking powder, and it has certain forms of spices, it may have some chocolate, and so now you've told them not only what it is, but what makes it what it is. You've told them the ingredients. Well, then when you're done that, they say, yes, and where did the ingredients come from? And you say, well, the flour came from grain, which is grown out in the field somewhere, and the shortening came from either grain or a certain animal which fed upon the field, and then you tell them the origin of those ingredients. Now, what we've done in our study thus far is we've tried to tell you what the cake is. What is the fear of God? It is that regard of God which, considering Him in the majesty and glory of His person, produces in us that sense that His smile is the greatest of life's blessings and his frown, the greatest of life's curses. Now we say, what is that made of? And we've said three ingredients. It's made up of right views of who God is, this pervasive sense of his presence, and this constraining awareness of our obligation to him. But now someone says, yes, but where do those ingredients come from? And so that's where we are this morning. Having looked at the cake, told what the ingredients are, we want to show what is the origin, what is the source of these things. And may I say at the outset, this is not an academic exercise. Some of you may sit here and say, oh, hum, why in the world in the passages tell us some nice, sweet things? Here he's going to make us think again. Oh, my friend, listen. One of the most crippling errors in all religious experience, even amongst Christians, is in this very area. It's not enough to know that a certain virtue is necessary, but you must know how to get that virtue. Remember what Paul said of his fellow Jews? They knew you had to have righteousness to be saved. They knew that a righteous God could not accept unrighteous people in a relationship of friendship. But Paul says in Romans 10, being ignorant of God's righteousness... They have gone about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted unto the righteousness of God. What was their problem? They knew that they had to have righteousness, 
but they weren't concerned to find out what is the source or the origin of the righteousness which alone is acceptable to God. Now I hope if you've listened with even half of one ear that you're convinced that if you don't have the fear of God, you're not a Christian. You know nothing of biblical religion. I hope you're convinced of that. If you aren't, then dear, when I say it lovingly, it'll take hell to convince you. If all the testimonies we've brought forth from Scripture and laid them out, if these things have not convinced you that it's necessary that you possess the fear of God, I don't know what will. Ah, the great crippling harm can come if you don't see the right place to get the fear of God. Not enough to know you must have it, but where you get it. And so this is not an academic exercise. It's a matter of great spiritual concern. And it's only because of that that I've wrestled with trying to lay out in some simple, clear way the biblical material on the subject. Well, how will we answer the question then, what is the origin or source of the fear of God? I want to do it by, first of all, showing that the fear of God implanted in the heart is a distinct blessing of the covenant of grace. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that. And then secondly, I want to demonstrate from Scripture how the fear of God is planted in the heart by the work of God's grace. First of all, then, let's establish from Scripture that the implanting of the fear of God in the heart of any fellow girl, man, or woman is a distinct blessing of the covenant of grace. As we have been considering in the adult class in recent weeks, all of God's dealings with men are on the basis of his covenantal relationships to them. God pledges to do certain things upon certain conditions which he himself determines. Now the blessings of salvation, according to scripture, the blessings of the saving grace of the triune God come to us in the terms of what scripture calls the everlasting covenant, described sometimes under the terms of the new covenant when the blessings of that covenant are contrasted with the Mosaic economy. Now, Jesus said in the institution of the first occasion of the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, all that he is to do in the shedding of his blood has distinct reference to the blessings to be secured within the framework of the new covenant. No man receives any blessing of the covenant apart from the blood which Jesus shed, but all who receive any benefits from that blood receive them in terms of the distinct blessings of the new covenant. So then, everyone who has any interest in the blood of Christ should be vitally concerned about the new covenant. Now, what blessings were promised in that covenant? And if you want a good uh, exercise for your studies this afternoon to sanctify the Lord's Day, then study in detail the section in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and Jeremiah 32, where you have the clearest statements in the Old Testament concerning the peculiar blessings that God will bring 
under the new covenant. And we know that these passages apply because the Holy Spirit quotes them in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews 10. But now the passage that I have particular concern that we look at this morning is Jeremiah chapter 32. For of the passages dealing with this matter of the new covenant, it alone speaks directly to the matter of the fear of God and its place in the new covenant. Now remember what we're trying to do so you don't get lost in the woods and can't see the woods for the trees. We're establishing the fact that the origin of the fear of God is the blessing promised in the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 32, and now beginning with verse 38. All of these blessings of the new covenant are couched in the language that is suffused with references to Israel, to Judah, for God was giving his prophecies through that people. But we know that they have a reference to all of the people of God as they are thus used in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. Verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from following them to do them good. Now here's the pivotal phrase. And I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Now in the climate of promising mercy to his people, promising good to his people, God says he will put his fear into their hearts, verse 40, thus securing their perseverance in his way. Notice the relationship. I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. In the old economy, though God set his law before them, Though they had such displays of his majesty and his power that they trembled and dared not touch the mount, they went a-whoring from him time after time after time after time until God has to send the whole nation into captivity because of their spiritual hoarding. Now, he says, in the administration of this new covenant, of the blessings of the everlasting covenant, all the people who come under the blessings of this covenant will not go a-whoring from me. They will not depart from me, and the reason they will not is this. I will put my fear into their hearts. I will so establish them in my fear from the heart, that is, the seat of their beings, that they will cling to me, cling to my ways, and will not depart from me. So then what do we learn from this statement in the prophecy of Jeremiah? We learn first of all that the fear of God is a distinct blessing of the everlasting covenant. No man fears God unless he has the fear of God within the framework 
of the covenant of grace. Secondly, it is a distinctly sovereign work of God. I will put my fear into the heart. How can God state it any more clearly that he is going to do this? He will do it within the framework of the everlasting covenant, and he says, I will put it into the heart. The realm in which he establishes his fear is the seat of a man's being, and what a man is in his heart he is. Keep thy heart, for out of it are the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. God says then, what I do will not be a surface thing that will merely affect them for a time, as in the administration of the Mosaic economy, when they tremble for a time. And when under the prophet Elijah, there is this demonstration of power, and the nation falls for a time upon its face, saying, the Lord, he is God. The pattern of the nation as a nation was spiritual whoredom and turning from God continually. But he says, not so. All who come under the blessings of this covenant will have my fear implanted in the heart. It will secure their cleaving unto me. And the fifth thing this passage tells us is that it will be done in a context of gracious blessing. Verse 38, I will be their God. I will do good to them. Verse 41, I will rejoice over them. So that this implanting of his sphere is within the context of the blessings of grace. Now, what can we conclude from this prophecy of Jeremiah? Two things. One, there is no way to be a partaker of the fear of God, but to have it put into our hearts as a distinct blessing of the new covenant. No such fear is ever found growing in purely Adamic soil. There's only one attitude to God that you can grow in your heart by nature. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, by nature, if your conscience becomes awakened, you may dread God with a dread that wishes God were not, as Adam did. He was afraid when he heard the voice of God. He wished that somehow God would go into a state of non-existence. But you won't fear God with this fear of awe and veneration that binds you to Him in a relationship of love and obedience. Only those who come under the blessings of the new covenant, no way to be a partaker of this fear, but in the way of the new covenant. It doesn't come by education. It doesn't come by spiritual osmosis. It comes only as you enter the blessings of the new covenant. But the second conclusion we draw from this passage is that all who are partakers of the blessings of the new covenant will evidence that the fear of God has been planted in their hearts. No such thing as a sinner forgiven by the blood of the covenant who doesn't fear God. No such thing as one who comes to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and is pardoned, but who then goes out to walk indifferent to God's fear. No, no. No way to know the fear of God but coming under the blessings of the new covenant. All who are under any of its blessings are under this blessing of his fear. Having established then the first principle, that the origin of the fear of God is 
that it is a distinct blessing of the new covenant, consider with me now the manner in which the fear of God is imparted to the human heart in the new covenant. I don't mean to be irreverent when I ask this question. Does God, as it were, form a disposition called the fear of God? And then like you put money into a safe, does he just clunk it down in the heart of a sinner? Is that what he does? Now, I don't limit him. He could do that. If he can put into the minds of heathen kings like Cyrus to be kindly disposed to his people in order to fulfill his words of prophecy, I have no question that God can do anything he wants along this line. It says the heart of the king is in his hand, he turns it as he wills. Now, the question is not what God can do, but has scripture revealed how he puts the fear of God into our hearts? That's the issue. And it's a beautiful thing when we discover that with so much of God's workings in grace, God's working in grace does not bypass the natural structure of how man is made, the operations of his mind and his affections, but it works behind and underneath and in and through them. So that many times it's difficult to discern our working from his work. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? God worketh in you, how? To bypass the use of your wishing and desiring and choosing and willing and doing? Do we just sort of become uh, little uh, puppets at the end of the strings of God's working, waiting for impulses to move us to pray, to move us to witness, to move us to holy deeds? No, no. God worketh in you to will. He works beneath the level of my consciousness. All I'm conscious of, that I chose to come to church. That I chose when Mr. Bischoff was praying to give myself with him as he prayed, as he worshipped. I chose to have my heart go out with him. God was working in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that he doesn't work in us bypassing what we are as human beings, but laying hold of all that we are, working beneath and above and outside and through and in. And this is the beauty of the working of his grace. And so, turning to Jeremiah chapter 31, we can see how he plants this fear in our hearts as we parallel this passage dealing with the blessings of the new covenant with what we've already read in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in though after those days, saith the Lord. Blessing number one, I will put my laws in their inward part, and in their heart will I write. What's the first distinct blessing then of the new covenant? And this is the passage quoted almost word for word in Hebrews chapter 8. God says this is the first thing I will do. I will powerfully and inwardly incline them to a life of obedience. What I require of them will not only be external to them, 
They had that in the Mosaic economy. They knew what I required of them. I wrote it with my own finger upon the tablets of stone. But he said, with the few exceptions of those true Israelites within Israel, very few of them could say with David, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. But he said, in the new covenant, everyone who comes under the blessing of this covenant will not only have the external standard of my law to tell him what to do, but he said, I will write my law upon the heart. There will be an inward affinity to that law, so that there will be an inclination to keep and to obey that holy law. God says, I will not only set my requirements before them, but I will inwardly incline them to a life of obedience. Now, what is that but the third ingredient of the fear of God? I called it a constraining awareness of my obligations to God. Wasn't that the third ingredient of the fear of God? And God says, here, I'll put that in you. I will write my law upon the heart so there will be a constraining awareness of your obligations to me and a delight to perform your obligations. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Why? Thy law is within my heart. External to me, telling me what to do, yes. But internal, within me, inclining me to the life of obedience. What's the second thing God says he'll do? Notice. The latter part of verse 33. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All that I am as I've revealed myself as God. And in the New Covenant, we know that that takes in the whole revelation made in the person and work of His dear Son. All that I am as God, they will gladly own. And, He says, not only will I be their God, not only will... Let me get the phrasing again. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They will not only own me as I've revealed myself, but I will own them. Now what is this? But God bringing himself into an intimate covenant relationship to his people, filling them with this pervasive sense of his presence and of their relationship to him and his to them. And isn't that the second ingredient of the fear of God? where a man recognizes this great, mighty, transcendent, holy, powerful God is not a God out there somewhere, but He is my God. And I am His child. I belong to Him, and He belongs to me in this covenantal relationship. God says, this is what I'll do. He'll commit Himself to an intimate relationship with His people, which is one of the great pivotal issues of all God's covenant relationship. You see it come to its fullest expression in the second last chapter of the book of the Revelation where the new heavens and the new earth are described and John says, God himself shall be with them and he will be their God and they shall be his people. That's what heaven's all about. That's what it's all about. And God says, this is what I pledge in the new covenant. Then what's the third thing he promises here? Verse 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. God says in the new covenant, he will impart a true and inward knowledge of himself to his people. Under the old economy, there were some that truly knew God. But the great masses of them, they didn't know him. Saw such mighty demonstrations of his power, but they were utterly ignorant of his heart. God tells them, look, I hear your groaning down here in Egypt. I move with pity and compassion. I send Moses down to be a deliverer, to bring you out in my pity and compassion. And they're no sooner out of Egypt, down by the Red Sea. And what do they do? They come to Moses and say, look, God brought us out to kill us. They didn't know Jehovah. They had no knowledge of his heart. To think that of God, the God who said, I've heard your cry. I've heard your pleas. They've come up into my presence in love and in pity. I'll redeem you. They turn around and say, he's brought us out to kill us. How would you feel as a father if you told your son, look, I've planned a wonderful day for you. We're going to do thus and thus and thus. And you know, sooner I get in the car and he says, Daddy, are you going to take and run this car off a cliff and kill me? You'd say, son, you don't know me. You don't know me. I've told you what my... They didn't know him. They didn't know him. Oh, a few did, but they didn't know him. They didn't know his power. They had seen those miracles and the plagues upon Egypt. And yet here's a little sea. They had things bigger than our God. We've had it. They didn't know him. They didn't know him. But he says in the new covenant, they'll not need to be tutoring one another saying, Know the Lord, for one of the blessings of the new covenant will be what? The impartation of a true and inward experimental knowledge of God. And what is that? But what I called earlier, right views of the character of God inwardly and spiritually perceived. And so the three ingredients of the fear of God are all here. God says, I'll put these things into their heart. And by putting the ingredients there, you get the cake. When you put the flour and the shortening and the leavening and everything in the right proportions, you come up with a cake. Where the ingredients are put together, you get the end product. God says, I will put my fear into their hearts. How will he do it? By, number one, we saw. By first of all, he says, inwardly disposing them to a life of obedience. Making them aware of their obligations to me and making them delight in the discharge of that obligation. I will, he says, commit myself to an intimate relationship to them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And he says, I will bring them to an experimental knowledge of who I am. But now notice carefully, I left out one phrase at the end. And this is, as it were, the pivot upon which everything else stands and rests. For, for, I will do all of this in the light of, and with reference to, and because of this great blessing, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. In other words, the base upon which all these other blessings rest, and that by which the others are supported, is the blessing of full and final forgiveness of sins. All these things that I said I would do, inclining you to my will, giving you an experimental knowledge of myself, 
owning you as my people so that you own me as your God. All of this, he says, is inseparably joined to the forgiveness of sins. And only he who receives that forgiveness will know the other blessings of the new covenant implanted in his heart. And so you see there is in the development of the thought of the prophet. And again I remind you it's quoted in Hebrews 8 to show this is what Christ came to effect. There is this inseparable relationship between having the ingredients of the fear of God and therefore having the fear of God and being in a state of conscious forgiveness through the blood of the covenant. Now there's one text of scripture that ties those two thoughts together beautifully and I want you to turn to it for the remainder of our time this morning. And let me exhort you to gird up the loins of your mind and pray that the Spirit of God will make this truth increasingly real or perhaps real for the first time. Here in the 130th Psalm, the context is a state of dejection by the people of God. They are in what the psalmist describes the depths. And the first verse comes to us, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. That's the context. Out of the depths. When you're in the depths, you may not be able to shout, but you can cry. And that's what he does. Out of the depths, I've cried. I can't shout, I can't rejoice, but I can cry. I can cry. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Now we get a little hint as to what his depths are. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? As he contemplates who God is, holy, lofty, spotless light, purity, inflexible justice, he says, Lord, if a God like you should mark iniquity, that is, if you should take account of every sin I have committed, every deflection from your holy law in thought, in word, and deed, if you should mark all that I have done that is contrary to your law, if you should hold me to an account for all that I failed to do that is required by your law, who, Lord, could stand? That is... Who could abide in your presence? As Psalm 1 says, The wicked shall not stand in the judgment. They shall be overcome. They shall shrivel before the sight of his burning holiness and their own guilt and sin. And so the psalmist asked the question, O oh God, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And if we cannot stand before God with delight, we can't walk in his fear. How can you hold delightful communion with a God before whom you sense nothing but dread and terror? Who could stand before you, God? There's the question. But then verse 4 brings out the affirmation. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. He says, Lord, no one could stand before you. If you mark iniquity, if you were to punish iniquity, if you are to give me what we deserve, and if I cannot stand before you, I will know nothing of a heart inclined to do your will. I will know nothing of being able to own you as my God and have you own me as your child. 
I will know nothing of this inward experimental acquaintance with you that makes you delight in me and me with you. Hence, Lord, I will know nothing of true fear. I can know dread. I can know the terror of a Felix who trembles. But, Lord, I cannot stand. But, he says, the answer to this dilemma is a way of forgiveness has been discovered in God. And the result of discovering forgiveness in God is that it brings the discoverer into the fear of God. See it? So what does this text tell us? Ah, it sets before us in a beautiful synthesis what I've been trying to say throughout the last 15 to 20 minutes. That the end of this disclosure of his way of forgiveness on the part of God is to have a people who truly fear him. And a discovery of God's way of forgiveness will always secure the fear of God in the heart of the one who discovers it. You say, how is that? If the text had read, there is justice with God that he may be feared, I could understand that. But there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. How does the forgiveness of God discovered secure the fear of God? May I suggest two ways. Number one, because in that which was wrought to work out forgiveness, there has been the fullest, most intense and glorious display of all the attributes of God. If the fear of God begins with right views of God's character, seeing His majesty and His glory, then I say that discovering God's way of forgiveness is to discover the brightest display of all His glorious attributes. Therefore, because there is forgiveness with God, he is feared. How did that forgiveness come? Are you staggered at the wisdom that framed worlds, that formed the intricacies of the little cell as well as the expanses of the galaxies? Ah, listen, that's all like kindergarten knowledge when you stand baffled before the wisdom of the virgin's womb, of an incarnate God. The wisdom that would conceive a way of forgiving sinful men by God himself actually becoming a man. The offended God taking the offense upon himself and so discharging that offense that he can be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. No wonder Christ is called the wisdom of God. What a display of wisdom. Ah, but what about his holiness? Do you see his holiness when you look out with those escaping ones from Sodom and Gomorrah and see the plains going up in fire and brimstone and you say, who's doing this? You say, God. You say, oh, what a holy God he must be. Hating the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plains so much that he makes, as it were, heaven to be a belching oven to pour out fire and brimstone. My friend, listen, that's no display of God's holiness. In comparison with Calvary. But when you look to the cross. And see the shrouded heavens. Covered in blackness. Look upon the heaving bosom of the Son of God. And then you hear that cry. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? 
And the answer, the only answer is God is so holy that when his own beloved son, the one of whom he spoke from heaven on several occasions and said, this is the one in whom I am well pleased, when the sins of man are being imputed to him, the father must bring down the stroke of his wrath upon his own beloved one until he cries out with a cry that eternity will not be able to fathom. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You see, to discover the way of forgiveness wrought out in the incarnation of Christ, in the terrible agonies of Christ, is to see a display of wisdom far beyond any other display God has made. It's to see a display of holiness far beyond anything God has ever made. It's to see a display of power beyond any other display that God has made. Even the power that raised his son from the dead. For we read in Colossians 2 that Christ made an open show of the powers of darkness when he triumphed over them in his death and in his glorious resurrection. Think of all the the powers of hell that would have sought to keep him in the state of death. And when Paul would try to somehow gather some analogy, some illustration of the power of God operative in believers in Ephesians 1, what does he reach for? He speaks of the power of his might which he wrought in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead. There's the display of God's mighty power. The display of his love. Who can speak of it? God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The display of what I know no other way to describe than majestic condescension. Philippians 2. Thought it not robbery to remain equal with God. Emptied himself. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Now do you see why the way of forgiveness discovered produces the fear of God? How can you discover those things without standing amazed before such a God? Can you? Impossible. And then the second reason why forgiveness and fear are joined together is because a believing reception of that forgiveness which God offers through His Son, brings peace and rest from the fear of dread and of terror and binds the heart to God in grateful love and glad submission, even the submission of an adopted son. Who can discover that kind of forgiveness in God without saying here, Lord, I give myself to Thee is all that I can do. And so God, by showering mercy upon the undeserving and displaying forgiveness, brings his people into his fear. So we see then that the fear of God is secured upon the basis of mercy and grace in a way which all the terrors of the law could never approach. It considers God's mercies and benefits given more than his judgments promised. The fear of dread thinks of judgment and trembles. The fear of God thinks of mercies given and worships. 
It regards more the open hand of God's blessing than the closed fist of his judgment. This brings me to close the message this morning by drawing out several practical implications of this teaching as to the source of the fear of God. One very basic doctrinal implication, and I hope you'll listen carefully, and then several practical. Behold the folly of all man-made religions, for they will either seek to produce the fear of God on, on another basis other than forgiveness, or they will promise forgiveness in a way which doesn't produce the fear of God. All deflections from biblical religion will do one of two things. They'll say, like the Romanist, well, you can't tell people they're completely, fully accepted and forgiven. They'll go out and live like hell. That's the claim of Rome. You don't dare do that. They'll go out and raise Cain. You mean tell a man he's forgiven and accepted? Heaven is just as certain now as though he were there? He'll live like the devil. And so the way you produce the fear of God that produces obedience is rub the conscience raw with terrors and with insecurity and with doubts about one's acceptance. Keep the conscience raw. Rub it with duties. Rub it with terrors. Rub it with judgment. Then the person will tremblingly try to obey God, hoping they'll make it. That's not biblical religion. That's heathenism. This truth that we've dealt with this morning exposes it for what it is. Oh no, no, no. God takes the raw conscience full of the terrors of the damned and disclosing the way of forgiveness binds that heart to Him in fear. True fear based upon love and trust. But then the second aspect of false religion is this, and this is what you'll find much in our day. They'll say, oh yes, through the blood of the cross, full and complete forgiveness, and there are people sitting here this morning who have no terrors. You don't tremble like some of my poor Roman Catholic friends do, hoping and wondering if maybe you'll wake up in purgatory tomorrow. You're dead sure you're going to wake up in heaven. Because you're forgiven through the blood of the cross. But your forgiveness has come in a way which has left your heart utterly devoid of the fear of God. You don't know what it is to walk before him with a careful conscience. You don't know what it is to be powerfully inclined to obedience to his holy law from the heart. You'll go out and desecrate this day. You've thrown your two hours before God this morning. You'll use the rest of the day as you please. No reference to his law. You order your home, the use of your TV, your time. No reference to his law. And yet you don't have any terrors of the damned. No, why? Because, my friend, you've believed a lie. That you could have forgiveness in a way that left you a stranger to his fear. Both of those are errors that are damning at the core. You can't fear God until you come into the climate of full forgiveness. But if you come into the climate of full forgiveness, you must fear him. And if you don't, you've never known his saving mercy. Well then, several practical words of direction in closing. There are some of you here this morning to whom I would give a word of direction. I'd call you awakened souls. You've got a conscience that is rubbed raw. The terrors of the law and of God track you down. And you have a fear of dread. But you know nothing of that fear that is based upon forgiveness. 
You have the spirit of bondage, but you know nothing of the spirit of adoption which makes you cry, Abba, Father. I say to you, you'll find no rest and no true fear of God until you come as you are to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and see him seated upon a mercy seat. There is a way of forgiveness that he may be feared. You'll not fear him until you trust him as your Savior. And I plead with you to cast yourself upon him just as you are, for that's how he bids you to come. And then a word of consolation for some of you troubled souls, true children of God, who feel themselves so sinful. And at times you wonder, how can it be that God bears so long with the likes of me? Ah, oh, my friend, listen. Don't, don't listen to people who tell you, well, forget your sin. Just rejoice in the Lord. Now, don't forget your sin. You let the Holy Ghost show you all he wants in it. Realizing he's only shown you the one thousandth part of it. But ah, don't stop there. For listen. When you've said verse 3, God, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? The more you see of your sin, the more you'll be amazed at the display of all the magnitude of God's glory in providing forgiveness. And the more you see the magnitude of his glory in providing forgiveness, the more you'll fear him. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be. To whom much is forgiven, Jesus said, the same what? Love it much. So when God's showing you more of your sin, it's because he would draw you deeper into his love. Don't run away from that which would make you love him more. The way to love him more is not to think positive thoughts and say, well, if I'm accepted in Christ, I'm not going to think about my sin. I'm not going to think about my foul motives. I'm not going to think about the windings of my corrupt heart. I'm just going to be happy, happy, happy in Jesus all day long. Rubbish. The Holy Ghost never told anybody that. And if we live in the Psalms, it'll keep us from that. If we live in the Psalms, it'll keep us from that. Let the sight of your sin bring you to tremble with David in verse 3. Lord, if you should mark my iniquities. That's a child of God talking. That's not somebody who hadn't been converted. He says, Lord, if you should mark my iniquities. I who am your child. Who could stand? But there is forgiveness and come again in the words of that great devotional writer who wrote the book on the uh, declension of, of religion in the soul, Octavius Winslow's book, excellent work, where he says, Soak the roots of thy profession daily in the blood of Christ. That's it. And as you soak them in the blood of Christ, and come again and again to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, that's how the fear of God will be deepened. And then I would close with a word of what I trust will be a word of conviction to some of you who are deceived. There are many of you here this morning who feel yourselves to be forgiven. No dread, no fear of hell because you feel all is well. You say, I have the blessings of the new covenant. But my friend, where is his fear? He said, if he's brought you into that covenant, he's put his fear within your heart. Do you display the constraining awareness of your obligations to him? Do you display this pervasive sense of his presence? As one servant of God has said, But if any who imagine themselves partakers of God's forgiveness, who do not at the same time 
feel their hearts struck with a godly fear of the divine majesty. Let them know that all their joys are self-invented deceptions, since it is this very end, to this very end, that there is forgiveness with God, that he may be feared. Has your understanding of forgiveness bound you to a life lived in the fear of God? Let me make it more personal. If I were to ask your children, what's the one thing that characterizes your mom and dad above everything else? Would they say, he fears God. In everything in the home, daddy's first regard is, what's God say? How we'll keep the Lord's day? What's God say? How we'll plan our lives? What's God say? What we'll do as a fact? What's God say? Would your children say that's the dominant characteristic of you as a father? Would they? Would they? What about you as a mother? You ask your children, what's, what do you think most of when you think of your mom? Would they instinctively say, well, I don't know how to describe it, but, but all I know is that, well, in everything mom does and says, it's, it's what God says that matters most. It's knowing God. It's believing Him, trusting Him, loving Him. Is that what your kids would say of you? Would they? Or would they say, well, that which characterizes dad most is, now let your conscience go to work. What would they put? What would they put? That which characterizes mom most is, how I thank God that I can give that testimony to my parents. Anyone ask me, what's your mom think most about? I'd have to say, before I was converted, I would have said it with clenched teeth. Ah, everything. God, God, God. Now I can say, thank God. Everything was God. God. What did he say about rearing children? Not what his psychology say. Not what his doing say. What's God say? Not what does society say about the home. What's God say? Is that what you're saying? Your kid's going to make that testimony of you? My friend, you can't buy that. You can buy pretty clothes. Keep them right up to step with their fashion. But you can't buy that witness. You've got to earn it. And you earn it in a life lived in the fear of God. Thank God I know there's some of you kids that would jump off your benches this morning and say, Pastor, that's my mom and dad. There's some of you that wouldn't dare go home and ask your own kids if they could be one that would jump off the bench this morning because you know they couldn't if they were honest. Can I make it any plainer? Will you go out another Lord's Day with just a Christ of convenience? Or will you say, Oh God, by your dear Son in the Spirit, give me such a sight of forgiving grace that I'll begin to truly fear you. That's the origin of the fear of God. The climate of the gracious provisions of the new covenant. Isn't it wonderful, child of God, to look back and say, you mean God did all of that to bring me to fear him? Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of time, but the scripture says that the works of God are sought out of all those that have pleasure therein. Has it been a pleasure to trace out this morning how God put his fear into your heart? Doesn't it make you want to say hallelujah?
What a Savior. When God said, I'm going to take that sinner, I'm going to bring him in tow, and I'm going to put my fear into his heart, and then gave us such a sight of his saving mercy that broke us. And we didn't know what happened. I look back now and say, how stupid I was. But all I found, I couldn't keep away from this book. I wanted to know what it said, and I wanted to do it. And God wasn't just a word that mom and dad talked about. He was my God, and I knew him, and I knew that he owned me. And now to see, you mean God did all of that to a little dirty mouth senior high school up in Stamford, Connecticut. Oh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Ah, dear friend, if you can't be amazed in tracing out the work of God, may God grant that you'll cast yourself upon his dear son, the mediator of the new covenant. This is what Jesus does. Flee to him. And ask him to have mercy upon you. Let us pray. O Lord, we stand amazed. We stand baffled by such displays of grace and of mercy. Oh, forgive us that we live so long with such hard thoughts of you. When we thought that to obey you and to serve you was the essence of bitterness and gall. But we thank you that you showed to us a way of forgiveness that brought us to fear you. And that fearing you we find delight. And have found that life which is life indeed. Oh, be pleased to seal your word to the hearts of some who perhaps have been deceiving themselves for years. Others who are under the lash of the terrors of the law. Others of your children perhaps discouraged. God, apportion this word to the great spectrum of need present here this morning. And do it to the end that your name will be praised and your glory seen in us. Hear us, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord.